The Beervana podcast is proudly sponsored by Bud Light Lime Marita. Bud Light Lime Marita has the great taste of a lime margarita with a twist of Bud Light Lime for a delightfully refreshing finish. With Bud Light Lime Ritas, there's no need to spend time mixing and blending to prepare a lime-flavored beer margarita. Just pop open, pour over ice, and enjoy. Welcome to another edition of the Beer Vana Podcast, Jeff. Hello, Patrick. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Welcome back to the States. Yeah, thank you. Had a nice time. A uh, very brief time, but um, yeah, I was in Ireland there for about five days. Yeah, Jeff had a little uh, junket to the Guinness Brewery in Ireland, which maybe in some future podcast we'll discuss more. But yeah. uh, um, I, my junket was to uh, Canada over, yeah. the, over the spring break for the kids. So Twin junkets. But here we are back in uh, Portland, Oregon on a beautiful... Spring has arrived. Yeah, on, on this, this first day of April. This first day of April. Yeah, it's what almost seventy outside, sunny, beautiful. It suddenly feels like summer is starting to yeah. arrive. So at least the winter is starting to go away. And uh, the hot and the sun actually is an inspiration for our uh, current, our, uh, today's podcast, which is um, kind of a different topic. But before we get to that, uh, with me, of course, I have to introduce my um, co-host Jeff Allworth author of the Beer Bible from Workman Publishing and Cider Made Simple from Chronicle Books. Uh, both are available now. Get them at amazonpals.com. Uh, you can find him blogging at Beervana. You can find him tweeting at at Beervana. You can find him blogging also at All About Beer Magazine. He writes for All About Beer Magazine. Uh, and there's a Beervana Facebook page. <laughs> Did I cover everything? <laughs> That's a lot. That's called it. a platform, baby. Yeah. <laughs> And each one of those represents an audience of four people. So I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm well, in, you got them all up, and, that's, yeah. and now you're starting to <laughs> that's, that's right. double digits, maybe. Literally dozens. Uh, and with me is, of course, Patrick Emerson, a professor of economics at Oregon State University, uh, as well as a research fellow at the Center for Applied Microeconomic Research at the Sao Paulo School of Economics. And you can find Patrick blogging at Beeronomics and tweeting at, at Beeronomics. That's right. So uh, let's talk about today's um, sort of left of left field uh, entry into the, our, our podcast universe, which is um, something that Jeff and I first encountered when we were both undergraduate students uh, here at the local Lewis and Clark College. We spent a big part of our junior year abroad in India. And uh, what we found out then um, and sort of forgot about uh, uh, but uh, is now seeing a little bit of a local revival, is something that very few people know about. It's called Mughal Cistern Beer. It's a strange and forgotten uh, drink from the court of the Mughal rulers of India, uh, who ruled during what epoch? South Asian studies major. Uh, well, they ruled for a long time. So it was like, I think the Delhi Sultanate was maybe around 1000 AD, and then they went all the way up into, uh, I don't know, the 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 last the last traces I think made it to the 19th century or something so long long period of time yeah and sort of uh, lost and forgotten except for uh, like a lot of things that happen in craft beer these days and who knew there was a craft beer scene in India but there is a rev somewhat of a revival going on there's a brewery that is trying to uh, sort of revive um, some version of the style so uh, we will be talking about that um, in today's blog very cool yeah so uh, before that. Uh, 
Let's go to the news. <laughs> and next, the news. Uh, how long will, it, will we still be amused by that? It's hard to say. Uh, not so much news. Uh, just a couple of items. The first one on the on the list is you may have heard that um, an Oregon brewery is opening another uh, production facility um, on the East Coast to help uh, with their large volume. And in this case, of course, we're talking about Hair the Dog, opening one of Oregon's most famous breweries. Most famous and beloved uh, boutique craft breweries. Right. They're going to be opening a, 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 a new facility in uh, Brooklyn, I think it is, somewhere in New York City. Somewhere I think, in New York City. Yeah, I think it's in Brooklyn, though. Reminds me of sort of the Stumptown exodus that went from a bunch of coffee shops here to all of a sudden right down in the middle of Manhattan, apparently. Yep. Uh, that's incredible. That's exciting. Yeah, I'm sure the people in the, the Big Apple will be happy and, and just up and down the eastern seaboard. Yeah, you should, this is this is some of the finest beer around, so uh, uh, that it'll be nice for that to be local, uh, yeah. available locally to those, to those folks. Uh, so there's not a lot of news, but this is big news, I think. This is... Um, uh, quite interesting development from the from the economics business side, which is that um, uh, Anheuser Busch's high sort of their 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 galaxy now of high end breweries, the Goose Island, Elysian, Golden Road, Ten Barrel, etc. Apparently, will now uh, be producing Bud and Bud Light in their local breweries. Yeah, this is fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, I I don't know uh, exactly what the what the strategy is here, and it's not clear to me from the from the press release whether. They're going to be brewing the expected to brew the, exactly the standard cookie cutter style of Bud and Bud Light, or do they get to have their own sort of versions? Is there going to be a ten, ten barrel Bud, right? Ten barrel Bud Light, dry, uh, dry hop Bud. Yeah, and I suppose the 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 panic might be whether they're trying to then convert these breweries into some sort of part of the corporate uh, towing the corporate line and eventually just brewing Budweiser beer uh, or Budweiser um, uh, mainline brand beer. So. Yeah, it seems a little counterintuitive. Um, I'm surprised to they're going this direction, but yeah, I mean, all along I thought that they were clever in acquiring breweries that would do their own thing, have their own local identity, and yet be part of their family. Uh, now I'm not so sure what's going on. Yeah, this is um, unusual. I yeah, uh, I I I th- I think that if if it's going to be sort of some local version of Bud Bud Light, that this might not be as successful, but. Uh, time will tell, um, and we'll just have to see where that one goes, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's all the news fit to print. That's all the news. All right. Fit to chat, fit to chat about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so moving on. So let's let's uh, let's move on to um, ancient India. Ah yes. <laughs> and why don't you why don't you get us started by by telling us um, what what this beverage was and how it was made. Yeah, this is so. This is kind of a cool thing. Um, I think most most of our listeners out there will not have encountered this. Um, India is a bit off the the beer map, um, but it was a beer that was made. So uh, one of the in- more interesting things about beer is in the pre refrigeration time mm-hmm. in Europe, nobody brewed in the summer um, because that was when you made really terrible beer. It was right. too warm. And there was too much stuff in the air. Yeah, but the the Mughal rulers uh, brewed principally in the summer. Because uh, of the this fascinating setup they had, um, and India, by the way, many many parts of India in summer are searingly hot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like is, it can get up to 120 degrees. Yeah. I mean, it's brutally hot. Very, very hot. Uh, so incredibly counterintuitive. Yeah, uh, and this the the Mughal rulers were in North India, particularly northwest India in the desert country, Rajasthan, um, 
that kind of region. So it was very hot there too. Uh, and they had in the in the these these gorgeous palaces and stuff. They had actually a special brewing kit set up there. And the way it worked is they had this kind of special, really dark um, stone, and mm-hmm. they made sort of a, a square. It's, it was a mash tun, but it was recessed into the ground or into the like a, a platform there. Right. Uh, and they would put water in the morning and let the sun bake it and get really, really hot. And in the, like the hottest part of the day, they would come and bring uh, their crushed grain and dump it in there. Right. And, and how big are we talking? Like, well, it's not so clear. I we saw one of these right. uh, ourselves, and the one that we saw was maybe I don't know twenty twenty feet. Yeah, at most probably. Yeah, something like that, and maybe I don't know three feet deep. Yeah, like 20 by 20 square with about three feet deep black. Very Yeah, very dark. So that, of course, and help, helps increase the heat. Yeah, the one uh, we saw was, was empty, of course. It was dry. This was a this was an, an abandoned old Mughal palace. Yeah, we'll, um, we'll talk a little bit more about what we saw. That yeah. was, it was very cool. Yeah. Um, so they dump in the... And, and the, the beer that they were making was made out of rice, amaranth, and millet. Um, and I don't know so much about amaranth. It's like a quasi-grain. It's not... Exactly, grain. But anyway, they, this was the the thing they used. Mm-hmm. Um, let it sit there, and my sense is they let it, they let the mash sit for quite a while, maybe like a couple hours. Um, and apparently, it worked. It was hot enough. It got hot enough in that that tub to to uh, heat it all up, and the the the, the conversion happened. Um, Which is kind of amazing. I mean, the the mashing can happen at. at Sort of modern mashing can happen at fairly low temperatures, but still like 140 to 150 degrees. So, right. Um, but when the ambient temperature outside is 120 degrees, and you've got this black stone, it's actually not that hard to imagine how this water got hot enough to uh, to mash. Yeah, and the Mughals were were ingenious. Um, the the next part will uh, I'll describe. Uh, you and I saw some of the, th- the the techniques the Mughals had to to regulate heat. Um, yeah, yeah, they have. I mean. the, the this is one of the the actual memories that sticks out one of the most in my in my mind from our my trip there, which is visiting these big palaces and it's incredibly hot uh, region they're in, and so there's these they create these big sort of wide open rooms that are completely covered, so there's a roof over everything, but they're all open on all sides, right? Like so no walls, lots of shades, so no walls, so all the breezes can come through. And then what they did is they created these little canals um, through the middle of these rooms in which water would flow. And it would create this sort of natural swamp cooler, as we call it, or just natural right. air conditioning that would happen. So they could hang out in this area and be and be cooled off by the breezes that are blowing over the cool water that's flowing through the through the room. So it's and this is you know this is ancient. This yeah. is amazing technology um, uh, uh, by a, you know a very advanced civilization. Right. And they and this this uh, this beer is actually a, a perfect example of it. Um, they they had they figured out the heat, so they had this heat thing going, and then and then the next stage was when they drained the wort out, um, because it's the desert. Mm-hmm. Uh, water is a really prized resource. They kept it buried under the ground where it was um, uh, would be safe. They could draw on it during the long dry months after the monsoon. Um, so it's cool because it's underground, and right. they would run this the wort uh, through pipes or I don't this was long long enough ago I'm not really sure what the plumbing system was yeah clay, run, clay pipes perhaps I don't know yeah it could be um, through these cisterns where it would cool off which is a an amazing kind of early form of a temperation which is this process that uh, brewers developed where they use cold water to 
cooldown wurt um, running, and the British figured this out. Mm-hmm. Um, that sometimes they'd run a little pipe through a big pipe, and you know, hot wurt would be in the middle one, in the little one, and and cool water would be going in the other one, and go in the opposite direction. Right. Um, so the Mughals figured the same kind, same kind of thing out. Uh, and then the so then the wort would the cool wort would end up in another cistern is the, the name of the the, the the Mughal cistern beer refers to the cistern that was fermented in right again subterranean where it would stay cool uh, and it uh, yeah so and uh, the, the, I think the really fascinating thing there's not a lot written about this but we can in, we can infer a few things mm-hmm. um, the the fermentation they didn't pitch anything it was a wild fermentation right of course. Um, and I think what's interesting is, uh, because it was the desert, there's not very many plants, you know, it's not like they have all these rich, uh, or this rich biosphere outside. Right. With lots of yeasties floating around. Yeah. yeah. So somehow the fact that they were in the desert meant that they could brew in the, in the, in the middle of summer and mm-hmm. they still, they didn't get enough of these, these unnatural things. Right. So the beer would, uh, ferment the wort would ferment and, um, it was kind of a, one of these quick ferments, more like a traditional, uh, 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 beer like the ones they make in Africa or, or Chicha from South America, pretty quick, like less than a week, I think. Oh, okay. Uh, not like a land, like they didn't barrel age these for for, <laughs> for months or years. Right. Um, and they used they sometimes uh, flavored that with like saffron and cardamom and dates. Um, I, those are some references. I don't know if they always did it that way, but um, mm-hmm. sometimes they would flavor it, and then they would serve it chilled on the to the Mughal court, and it was kind of a famous. Uh, beverage that they had. Well, not so famous because we forgot. Because we forgot all about it. But back uh, in the day, it was famous. So interesting. But I mean, the Mughals were Muslims, correct? So right uh, today, modern Muslims have a famous prohibition on the consumption of alcohol. Not true for the Mughals. Not true for the Mughals. Apparently, they were. Uh, they drank. Um, they drank this. They drank wine. Uh, they, there was. If you if you look if you Google Mughal and alcohol, there's a Wikipedia page that talks about how they they traded alcohol like mm-hmm. it was a uh, there's a market for alcohol that they they participated in huh. so i don't know apparently i mean the, i've heard i'm not 100 percent sure about this but uh, i've heard that the 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 prohibition against uh drawing the, the a picture of the prophet is a more recent thing and then that um shortly after his death for a few hundred years it was not considered taboo so right. so you know things do change things change in religion yeah interesting uh so um Let's see. Uh, when we visited, uh, and we go back to, to, to where to where we were when we yeah. When let's we talk saw about one. the one we saw. That was pretty cool. Yeah. So we were in Fatapurasikri. So this is uh, just to let the reader, the listener, know how ancient your hosts are. This is in uh, uh, nineteen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. no yeah. Nineteen eighty-eight. Go ahead. Nineteen eighty-nine. Yes, I know. I was going to. I was trying to sort of circumvent that, but you've you've let the ball in. No, nope, we have to admit it. We're uh, you know everything We're, about this podcast is above board and completely uh, true and honest. Of yeah, course. Yeah, we are. We are old. We are old. <laughs> so, uh, Fata Prasikri is interesting because it was. Uh, it's a city near Agra, which uh, people will know because that's the town that um, uh, hosts the the Taj Mahal. Right. Um, uh, speaking of Mughals, uh, and the Fatapurasikri is a town. Well, they call it Lost City of Fatapurasikri, but it's really just a sort of a big palace complex outside of Agra, um, which is sort of interesting. It's where I saw all this architecture and these trenches for water, and where we saw this, where we saw the cistern for the first time, and and, and learned. Although 
we hardly knew what we were seeing at, at the time, uh, but learned about this um, uh, this beverage. Uh, but and it's called a, a lost city because uh, unfortunately they they built all of this miraculous waterworks in a place where. Uh, there was a tragic lack of or drying up of water. Yeah, and they made it something like seventeen years, and they had to bail on the whole whole city. Yeah, so it's so. Uh, I mean, it's it's old and and, and decaying, but um, but amazingly well preserved because they basically had to abandon it almost as soon as they had built it. Yeah, it is uh, it is amazing, and it, it, one of the things that's amazing about it is they built it all from the ground up, and so um, it's not like just buildings in the desert. There's a whole platform. I mean, there, right, there's, right. there's there's stone all over the place. It is one of the most monumental structures. And yeah. and this is where we saw in this these big stone, you know, walkways and stuff. Yeah. Um and in, in the palazas or whatever they're called. Right. Uh we, we this is where we saw one of these and it just looked like any of the other And this may have there. changed in modern India and kind of I hope that it has. But what was one of the nice things about being there is is there was no there's no nothing. I mean, you could go anywhere. You could climb over anything. Yeah, I mean, it was. It was you not. Could, you could re-inhabit it if you wanted. Yeah, to. it was not being actively preserved. It was just there, uh, and so we were climbing up towers and doing all kinds of stuff. We probably shouldn't have been and wouldn't do as forty-eight-year-olds or uh, uh, what? You're forty-eight. Yeah. <laughs> now, now, now the truth comes yeah, out. An old guy like you shouldn't be climbing. <laughs> yes, uh, a spry forty-seven-year-old <laughs> like yourself. Um, but that's actually not uncommon. I mean, you know, it's it's not. Uh, it wasn't certainly at the time a very wealthy country and spending money trying to preserve artifacts when you have lots of poverty and uh, big social problems around it uh, doesn't seem like a priority so it's a little bit sad but it was kind of it was kind of fun <laughs> and and the truth is we haven't been back there since so that's right it's possible that they're they they're could, could be completely changed yeah when we visited the taj uh it was much more open and accessible and i know that they're yeah. taking much greater strides to try to preserve it well a smart tourism a smart tourism bureau would turn that into a, a tourist attraction and charge lots of money and probably make a good profit so yeah. um hopefully that's what's happened because um if if there's too <laughs> if there's too many teenage americans uh, climbing all over it it's not going to last that much longer that's right uh yeah well we we tried to be relatively sensitive. So there was, a, I think, I, I vaguely recall a sign here and there saying, "Don't do this" or something. Right. But, don't, <laughs> don't tear things up. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't take anything away. Um, so yeah. So Fatapur Sikri is uh, one of the places apparently where they they brewed this this beverage, and we got to see one of the cisterns. Yeah. Where, and the interesting thing about it was, it was actually this. So there are these areas where there were water pools and patrick mentioned the different channels this this pool looked just like some of the others except that it was made out of this especially dark stone mm. uh, for for heat absorbing mm -hmm. so um and uh and somebody alluded to it we knew vaguely this was actually early enough that we were not yet beer guys um so uh it was like our pre-beer thing it was an interesting factoid but not something we yeah it didn't, <laughs> didn't seem too enough. didn't seem too relevant in the era of hams and uh <laughs> and cheap beer and right um, yeah yeah so uh just one last thing one of the one of the sources we had for this which i i recently uh came across an english translation of the uh taral davat davat um which means liquid feast mm -hmm. which was a 17th century text which talked about um there's all these texts from the mughal era which talked about the the mughals had were a great administ administrators right. in all of north india so there's books that talk about their administration and there's books that talk about art and all these things and this is one that talked about the beverages of, mm -hmm. um, of the Mughal court and they talk about this beer which was called uh, Mughal Talab Sharab 
and that's where we read about it. It's, you know, it's not uh, detailed instructions, but it referred to these these cisterns and how they were made. So. Right. And otherwise, this beer would probably be lost to history. Right. Um, but thankfully, uh, a renewed interest in things probably uh, coinciding with the uh, the recent um, surge in prosperity of the country as a whole. And also a renewed interest in beer. Um, there's craft breweries in India, just like everywhere else. So there's some new new beer. Yeah. 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 And so and so there is a, uh, a brewery, you'll have to talk about it because I know very little, um, that has decided to try to uh, revive the style um, in a fairly fateful way, or at least attempting to, uh, in, a, in, a modern, uh, in modern times. That's right, and it's uh, called a Mayavi, the brewery, mm-hmm. and we actually have a bottle of it here. Yeah, amazingly. We, which is, we managed to procure uh, through our various international networks of That's right. trafficking. Thankfully, one of us was a South Asian Studies major and knows people who travel. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and it occurs to me that I don't have a bottle opener, so you, you talk while I go grab it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I have to look, I have to look and see what... Uh, what you've written here. So this is a this is a brewery in um, in in Rajasthan in, in the city of Jaipur, um, which we also visited when we were when we were there, uh, which is um, uh, a city in the desert uh, of Rajasthan. Ah, the, the the bottle opener has has returned. Um, here we go. This is going to be interesting because I have no idea what to expect. I know, me either. Beer of some kind. A beer-like beverage, a malted green beverage. Huh. That's a lot of head. That's a lot of head. It's very um, effervescent. Is it? Can you? I've got it up there. Can you hear? It yep. Crackling. Yep. I'm in the one with the monitor headphones. That's why Jeff is asking me. So I can hear what the mic's picking up. You're the producer. <laughs> I'm the producer. I'm the talent. All the. I'm the <laughs> All this incredibly high quality uh, audio. You're the foil. <laughs> uh, this is all all Patrick's doing. So um, when you hear the, the the subtle quality of our voices, uh, that's it. That's the producer's job there to all make right. us sound great. All right, but we did. Okay, you got to describe this. Okay, well, it is a fairly pale beer, although it has a wonderful golden cast, mm-hmm. um, which I wonder. So there's, they supposedly use saffron in this. And maybe that comes from the saffron? Yeah, I don't know. Smell it. It's got an interesting uh, aroma. Mm, yeah, it does. It's kind of yeasty, sort mm-hmm. of. Uh, I haven't tasted it yet, but it, you get a little bit of a sour note. Yeah. Um, mm. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty murky. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's got a... It's actually, you can kind of taste the particulates in there. There's kind of like little floaties in there. Yeah, it's a little bit like sort of kind of flowery. Yeah, I once had a um, some chicha from Peru that was that a friend brought back in a uh, rum bottle, mm-hmm. and it had the same quality. I think this is maybe characteristic of traditional ales. Yeah, and by flower, I don't mean like uh, flowers. I mean like flour from wheat, sort of uh, almost cakey kind of yeah body to it. Uh, it's very, it's kind of fizzy in a. Yeah, it's kind of nice, kind of sort of sour, sourdoughy. Yeah, sourdough. That's a good word. I yeah, think. yeah, kind of sourness to it, but it's not. It's not like Northwest IPA. <laughs> no, it's certainly not. <laughs> That's interesting, and it's certainly nothing like uh, a lager. So it's interesting to see. This is not the you know yeah. the, the Indian Indian pal, of course. 
to the extent there is a beer palate has shifted like everywhere else to mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to what, lager brewing. So. so what do we know about how they how they make this? Yeah, so this is interesting, um, and I think this will be a, a nice transition to to some economic chat. Uh-huh. Uh huh. They they actually have done. Uh, they've sort of they they're not only making this beer; they're kind of making it in the way that the old Mughals did. They managed to find a place in in Jaipur because, as you know, um, these old Mughal and Rajput ruins are all over the place. They're yeah, kind of everywhere. Yeah, and as you mentioned, they're not always like under anybody's purview. Right, uh, and they got the rights somehow to use this uh, one of these they found in one of these old mash tuns somewhere in, in, in or around Jaipur oh so they're actually using an, uh, an ancient an ancient uh, a well, talab what, what we'd call a mash tun yeah a talab <laughs> yeah I guess that's really? the really wow yeah, yeah. yeah I guess there's some reason no reason why not they're just big stone pools basically or stone stone uh, cisterns so right and this is the interesting thing they um, they didn't spend a lot of money on uh, the uh on the brewing kit, which is in, in the United States, you know, you can have four or five people running an entire brewery. Yeah. Because you have a lot of equipment. Well, here they have a lot of people running a brewery. Um, so uh, as, as far as I understand it, they still use some kind of like big mortar and pestle kind of thing to grind the, to mash the, the grain. Mm. Um, they do the mashing system. It does not, they don't have access to the cisterns underneath it. So they, right. they have these. Uh, if they even exist or they're not imploded or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. And who knows what kind of shape they're in. Yeah. Um, so they, they wheel the, the wort away and mm-hmm. people do this in these kind of cat, like a keg attached to wheels, um, and take them to a, a, a chilled area where, where they do the fermentation. Yeah. Well, I can't imagine you could sort of put a modern, like <laughs> build a modern brewery on top of one of these old systems. Besides it's gotta be open to the, to the sun. That's right. Uh, yeah, that's exactly and right. So the only thing you've got basically is a big stone pool that you have to basically carry water into and then carry grain into and right. i wondered i wonder if they do the milling on site um as well or if they yeah. do it off-site and then carry it in either way uh, and I, I yeah that might even i i'm not sure i don't know what kind of malting happens i don't know if you have to malt amaranth or millet actually mm-hmm. i don't know anything about that so they might i don't even know if they're maybe they're malting if they if it requires malting or yeah. maybe they're buying it i don't know huh. Um, but this system where you would, instead of putting all your capital costs in a large piece of equipment, Mm -hmm. instead of doing that, these guys are, are going for, um, uh, labor, Mm -hmm. having people do this stuff and, you know, kind of hauling work around and beer around like that. Um, this is typical of, uh, non-developed countries. Is that right? What do you what do you have to say about that? Yeah, yeah, it's actually one of the things. I mean, that's most noticeable when you travel to. Um, I'm going to use uh, the the sort of modern parlance and call it, talk about low and middle and high income countries. Um, people, uh, some people argue for that terminal, that lexicon, um, that sort of non judgmental and purely descriptive. So, uh, uh, in low income countries, what's um, generally true is that uh, capital is very expensive and labor is very cheap. In fact, um, one of the most striking images that as a, whatever I was, 18, 19-year-old kid who'd barely traveled um, and then got plunked into the middle of India, um, one of the images that I remember most vividly, uh, I think I used, I think I said that too about the Mughal, the, the Mughal palace, but, um, was, uh, riding in a bus down the road and you, and you come to these parts of roads that are being repaired or rebuilt or, or new roads that are being built. 
and um instead of instead of like uh, big giant machinery with um uh big piles of uh, of crushed rock for example to to make the bed of the road um what they had quite literally was a few huge boulders that had been dumped by the side of the road and then a a bunch of people with these tiny little hammers they're going tink, 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 <laughs> uh, on the boulder and then creating these little pieces of, uh, of uh, um, chipped off rock and then they were creating these piles which to me just seemed phenomenally inefficient like I couldn't even comprehend that you would actually build a, uh, a road that way and because I was so used to uh, capital being uh, so ubiquitous in, in our economy and so what's um, uh, what's uh, true is that it's 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 cost-wise more efficient. It takes longer, but um, what you have is a lot of people and a lot of people who need work, and so it doesn't make a lot of sense to um, to spend uh, humongous amounts of money. In that in that case, you would have to import you know these major machines, and um, and it just wasn't wasn't cost-effective in a in, in a place where there was a lot of unemployment and poverty. It's also true, and I I remember. Um, another sort of cultural experience in going to Brazil where um, uh, things like um, uh, as a graduate student, you know, I would change the oil in my car by myself because, you know, that's kind of expensive and I was relatively poor for an American. Right. Um, but to my... Your time was worth less than your money. Yeah, but to my Brazilian friends who are grad students, it just was inconceivable that you'd actually do this yourself. Like there's <laughs> people who do this for you and I thought, well, that's sort of uh, um, quite... I don't know, uh, upper classy of them. Uh, it turns out that it's it's upper classy, but it's also sort of middle class, and it's not just that labor is cheap, and so this stuff is relatively inexpensive. Um, but it's also that with so much cheap labor, uh, that's a result of poverty and unemployment. Um, that it's uh, sort of seen as a as an obligation that if you can if you can afford to employ someone, then you should. Um, right, and we saw that in India too. Yeah, that people. Even modest households would employ domestic work, domestic help, and stuff. Yeah, and so that's and, and it was described to me in Brazil very much as an obligation that this is this is something you should do. This is this is important. Um, you need to help by by employing people. Uh, so that's quite a different. You know, I, um, I felt very awkward having people around helping out and serving me things. Um, it didn't yeah. feel it didn't feel right. It felt almost exploitative. But they had an entirely different view. Right. Um, so anyway, all that all that's to say that it makes all kinds of sense that if you're in an area, especially where there's there's cheap labor and lots of unemployment, that you would um, do a lot of stuff by hand. Uh, and so apparently, apparently they do their own milling and and, and and cracking of grain and maybe even malting if they do that uh, uh, by hand. And that um, that's quite interesting. Especially um, it seems to be strange when you think about actually doing it at scale, but Again, like when you make these roads, um, you get enough people and you have enough time, you can make it work. So that's 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 fascinating. Yeah, it is, and very Indian. Sounds like <laughs> and, and, and and very and very Indian, very Indian, very Indian. Exactly. Um, so uh, we tried <laughs> to to do to do our own version. We didn't have a Moogle cistern, and we didn't have a mash a mashing. A black rock mashing thing and most importantly you know <laughs> in Oregon in the winter we didn't have any sun at all right. <laughs> uh, but we tried to make our own version of this um, uh, of this beer uh, and we have a little here that we have well actually I've had a little, a little yeah you, you've gotten a taste of this I have not because it was it was uh, uh, at your house we brewed at your house and, and it's been at your house and so you've had the, the and, preview and of course you don't have all the local ingredients but what do we do uh, 
How did we make it? Yeah. Well, we also used uh, uh, rice and millet, and we used some uh, wheat to, I think, to yeah. substitute because I don't, I don't even know what amaranth is. <laughs> Uh, and we made it, it's just kind of a traditional, we made basically a traditional ale where we did the, the, uh, uh the quick mash. Um, we, we didn't let it ferment naturally. We, but we pitched a little bit of, a uh, uh, we pitched the, the Lambicus strain of, of, uh, Y yeast to give it that little quality. Yeah. Which we were, we, we discussed what kind of yeast we should appropriately use. It was not obvious, but yeah, but I liked your suggestion. Yeah. Cause it's got a nice blend of, of different microbes in there and it actually does ferment out fast it'll allow it to continue to age but you can ferment a beer out pretty this is, fast this is a swing top so this one's going to be a new audio experience uh, for our right, listeners well let's be quiet so we can get the full Ooh. <laughs> also now <laughs> no, i'll admit that this is my quite crazy um co2 system that i have not yet mastered so, ah yeah so you we, we, we put this in the keg so the the effervescence is a little bit manufactured here well, and it's also quite likely, in the, given this beer, that um, it's continuing to produce fermentation. So it, might, it might have wilds in this growler. Uh, well, there was a lot of gas in the uh, bottle, it's but, a little bit flat there. but it's pretty flat otherwise. But that's more my in, inability to regulate the pressure than anything else. <laughs> okay, so here's the, here's the, here's the thing. We're, we were making a really basic beer, and of course we're in the Northwest, and what do we have uh, but a lot of hops. So we decided, well, what if we make a Northwest version of this and just dump in kind of a crazy amount of hops? We are Americans after all, and so that means we use hops. We yeah. can't help ourselves. Uh, besides, you know, wow, the, the, used a lot of hops. the Indians apparently used a lot of hops because they made IPA. So, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, mm. so how's ours compared to uh, the sort of pseudo authentic or the modern version of the authentic beer? Uh, ours is hoppy. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. Oh um, my gosh, you're right. I'm not sure we meant to hop it quite as much. <laughs> it's very juicy, um, and it does definitely has uh, an acidic character. Mm-hmm. Um, does not have the sourdough, you know. It's much more of a kind yeah. of a familiar, uh, uh, wild yeah quality. Yeah. Um, it actually harmonizes pretty nicely with those hops, though. Mm-hmm. I don't think it has anything to do with Mughal cistern beer. But no, it doesn't taste a lot like <laughs> this one here. But it's pretty tasty. But I kind of like it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think maybe, maybe that's a new pale ale recipe for us, which is a little uh, lambic yeast and a bunch of hops. Yeah. <laughs> it works out all right. So, mm. Yeah, that's not bad at all. You have a... Next time, next time the actual sun, well, the sun actually has come out in, in Portland. So it's true. This is a, a port sitter. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. All right. Well, uh, anything else you want to say about the Mughals and their beer? Uh, no, not so much. Let's. I don't know if there's anything else to say. Oh, I would like to say this. You met Mon Mahan Singh, didn't you? Yes. I just shoehorned this in for no reason. <laughs> Mon Mahan Singh was um, the. Uh, Prime Minister of India uh-huh. uh, in the the before Modi, right? Before and, that, he was like the chief economic. I forget. The, yeah, the, and this the is title. the thing. So people, most people, if they have heard him involved, would have heard him as the PM. But before that, he was an incredibly important economist. That's right. Well, uh, he really is the father of the opening of the Indian opening and liberalization of the Indian economy, which subsequently le- led to this phenomenal period of rapid growth, right. um, which isn't. Too much of a surprise, um, 
to me having experienced the pre-open Indian economy. Actually, that's why I'm, I, the one good thing about being old is that we got to experience this India that was still closed off mostly to the rest of the um, uh, Western economies. Uh, so there were very few foreign products in India at the time. Right. There were um, very high tariffs. If there were, um, there was a restriction that um, foreign entities couldn't own more than 49% of an Indian industry. And that had gone through a long period. This was right after Gandhi and, and um, independence. Uh, um, Nehru, um, uh, there was a strong sense of trying to build an independent and self-sustaining economy there. And so they did something that we call import substitution, which is they thought about the things that people wanted and, and um, were importing a lot and tried to create industries to replicate those products so they didn't have to import them instead made. So they would make their own televisions. They would make their own cars, <laughs> famously. Sure. Uh, uh, they had a product called Campacola. They had a Campacola and Thumbs Up instead right. of Coca-Cola and Pepsi. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there were very few. That's that's the thing. I mean, you can travel almost anywhere else in the world at the time, and you would be assaulted with Marlboro ads and Coca Cola and McDonald's. Uh, in India, nothing. There's no Coke. There was no Marlboro. There were no definitely <laughs> definitely no McDonald's. You were definitely assaulted with ads. They were just indigenous ads. They're all they're all ads, and oftentimes they were sort of cheap knockoffs of the familiar Western uh, familiar Western products. Anyway, um, there was also just enormous amount of bureaucracy and regulation, um, and you saw it all the time. We had to go through it as foreign students visiting there, which is kind of an odd thing. We had to go register ourselves. And I remember vividly, one of my, <laughs> I'm using that term a lot. Uh, another one of my vivid memories is having to fill out a form in quadruplicate. Yeah. Uh, because they didn't even have carbon, they didn't have enough carbon paper apparently nice. to go around. So I had to sit there filling out the exact same <laughs> form four times because I had to go to four different places and get stamped by four different people. And that's just such an example of the, the kind of um, what they called at the time license Raj, which is just this whole incredible industry of bureaucrats right. um, whose very existence was um, predicated on the fact that there were things to license and, and, um, and regulate. Uh, so it was enormously... Um, uh, overbearing and unwieldy uh, system that caused enormous amount of costs for anyone. And and I remember um, I saw an interview once with the guy whose name escapes me at the moment, but the but the um, guy who founded Infosys, which was the software company that sort of one of the first big international success stories in the new open economy. And he was talking about how long it would take, you know, months and months to um, process an order to get permission to buy a few uh, desktop. PCs to import a few desktop PCs. Um, it would just take an enormous amount of time. Um, and uh, after the reforms that Manmohan Singh uh, oversaw, um, that came, that you know that got down to days. So um, so an amazing um, amount of efficiency was introduced. And um, you know Indian uh, uh, Indians are, are smart, industrious people, and good entrepreneurs. And they took advantage. They took advantage. Yeah. So. Yeah, Manmohan was—he's a very cool guy, and I, it's, I wished I'd been able to meet him. Um, I, I know him more from the political side. He was elected in a time—he was sort of the Barack Obama of India. Um, India has its own kind of um, racial and, and I guess, uh, religious uh, history that's that's uh, complex and divisive and, and problematic. And he was elected, uh, I think, in about two thousand six. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, during a time when the Hindu Nationalist Party was extremely powerful and everybody thought they were going to sweep the uh, the 2006 election. They have the same kind of they have a parliamentary system just like uh, they do in uh, in England, mm-hmm. in the UK. And uh, no, no, uh, the people said 
out with you. Um, their economy was flagging, and they brought in the uh, the Congress Party, which is the old uh, Nehru Party, mm-hmm. like the ancient, um, the first like big grand party of, of India. And Manmohan was the leader at the time, and he became the prime minister, and he's a Sikh, which is a minority religion there. And yep. um, it was, uh, I thought, a, an extremely cool moment for Indian history. It was a moment when uh, India demonstrated that they had a true democracy because this, all the polls and everything else were going the one direction. And it was a sitting party, so if, there were, if it had been big corruption, they would have won, you know? Yeah, <laughs> right. Sitting parties that are corrupt do not get thrown out of office. Right. Mugabe right. does not get thrown out of office. Right, yeah. yeah. And one just to just to get one step further down the rabbit hole, which is the reason that I uh, got a chance to meet Manmohan Singh is that he um, hired uh, my dissertation advisor from graduate school, uh, Kaushik Basu, to be mm-hmm. basically what the equivalent is in the United States is the chairman of the economic advisors um, to the president. So he was sort of that role, a very public uh, uh, economist that tried that was sort of in charge of setting policy and policy goals for. Um, for the country uh, at the time. Um, and so that's how I know. And, and Kaushik is now the chief economist at the World Bank. Very so, cool. So there you go. So there you go. Uh, do we have any mail this week? No mail. Uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't beat the brush. But everybody, you've, been out of, you've been out of the country. No, I've been out of the country. But everybody should send us mail. This is, a, a, this is the hardest part of our podcast is getting people to send us mail. Um, and you can do it via uh, email. You can do it. On uh, Twitter, if you can do it in 140 characters less, you can do it on Facebook. Anyway, we'll take your, your question. We'll answer it here. The insight, the erudition you come to expect, <laughs> we're ready to go. Just send us something. Send us a semaphore, anything. We will we'll respond. I think you're thinking of that other blog they listen to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ours is the one with a bunch of people. On. Uh, in lieu of mail, though, uh, uh, I want you to... To, to share what you share with me at lunch, which is um, your uh, unique experience um, getting locked in. in, in ah, no, I'm not going to do that because that would that would step on the great article I'm going to write. So oh, okay. We, we, can, right. we can talk about that later after I write that great article. All right, so look for that for the All About Beer. Yeah, it'll probably go on the blog, I'm thinking. All right. Um, okay. Yeah, the look, All About Beer blog. Look for the blog. All right, so we'll, we'll, we'll skip, skip the mailbag for this week. Uh, and let's move to our Beer Shepherd recommendations. Very cool. Um, we're going to go India here because we're in an India mood. Of course. Of course we would go India. Yeah, absolutely. You want to uh, go, go first or you want me to go first? Uh, you can go first. Well, I am going to recommend a beer that you probably can't find in the United States. Yeah. Um, but the next time you're in Bangalore uh, or in Agra, say, visiting uh-huh. the Taj Mahal. There you go. You sidle on up to... After, after you've taken a day trip to Fatipur Sikri. That's right. You sidle up to your nearest... Uh, bar, which is actually not that easy to find. <laughs> I've got to say, <laughs> if you can find one, good for yes. you. <laughs> uh, maybe at a hotel. Um, Generally, yes. And have a Hayward's 5000. Ah. A quality lager, the Hayward's 5000. See, we, we, both went, we both went nostalgic in our beer ship recommendations. You betcha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like Hayward's because uh, it's, I think they use some kind of uh, uh, indigenous hop or a hop that was probably not indigenous originally, but they've been growing there for so long that mm-hmm. it, it takes on this quality. People who, who appreciate Indian cuisine might know of the uh, dessert called burfi, mm-hmm. which is this reduction, uh, this like milk, milk, milk reduction, reduction yeah. and it produces this really strange flavor that I can't 
compare to anything because it doesn't taste like anything. No. But there's a quality of these hops. It's just a, a kiss of burfy. Hmm. So hey, interesting. Yeah, exactly. So Hayward, Hayward's five five thousand. It's been so long. I can't. I can't remember. But, oh yeah. But I remember. But I remember that we did have it when we were there. I forget everything but the beers I've tasted. Seventy five percent. I like the Homer thing. Seventy five percent of my brain is uh, devoted to beers I've had. <laughs> yeah, I mean, other than this beer that that uh, was smuggled for us out of. Out of India, I have I don't really know anything about modern beer, so uh, I picked one that is maybe the only one, uh, one of the few that uh, consumers in the United States might uh, be able to find, which is uh, Kingfisher beer. Kingfisher, and I believe it's a classic. Yeah, and the, and the guy the guy who owns Kingfisher, BJ Malia. Although I guess he's no longer there. Oh, I is that right? Somebody say that recently. Uh, uh, now, now I, I'm going to United Breweries uh, was his was his thing. Oh, okay, and and he 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 acquired. Uh, was it Mendocino Brewing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and actually, which I also has a birdie theme. I think he. So I think you're about to describe the Kingfisher from India. Yes, they actually brew it domestically at one of his craft breweries. Oh, uh, so if you have it here, oh, okay, it might not you, be the same. It may so, not be the same. So you know, Kingfisher is an otherwise uh, fairly indistinct light lager, except um, uh, I think that. Um, Domestically, at least, they use um, like a hint of garam masala, which gives it this incredibly very subtle little India uh-huh. spice, which I it's uh, it's um, easy to miss. But if you're looking for it, uh, it's there, um, which is nice because it it creates sort of um, it's it's kind of a standard light lager, but but with an India Indian twist, and I think that also makes it go really well with Indian food. Of course. Um, yeah, so we wouldn't lie to you about that. So definitely check those out. Look for the flavor of reduced milk and uh, and grama masala. Uh, yeah, and yeah. All right. Well, I think that basically does it for this week, Jeff. Uh, excellent. I, guess I hope it's that... kind of a, a faster one this time for this this uh, special uh, April first edition. That's right, and and I hope you've enjoyed our our tour to uh, to the far corners of the beery world. Uh, a few words about getting in touch. Um, once again, we need we need contributions to the. To the, to the mailbag so uh, find us at um, uh, the Beer Vana Facebook page is a good way to get in touch um, emailing the underscore beer acts at yahoo.com is a, another excellent way to get in touch you can tweet us either at at Beer Vana or at Beeronomics uh, you can read Jeff's posts at the Beer Vana uh, blog um, you can read old posts of mine at the <laughs> Veronomics blog. Uh, although I do tweet, so you can follow my tweet once in a while. Yeah, you should. You should, because uh, Patrick actually tweets about more uh, uh, businessy things. Yeah, businessy, economic, economicy things. So that's what I tend to. I tend to. Although I did, you know, I posted that thing about beer taxes. There you go. Across the state. So you know, I'm yeah. not. I'm not completely uh, moribund. Excellent. Uh, yeah. So uh, we'd love to hear from you. Send in your questions and comments. Uh, and until then, and in case you missed it, uh, Patrick tweets at at Beeronomics. In case we didn't say that, so yes. Until then, until then, let's. Uh, I'll I'll pick up our um, Northwest Hoppy Cistern, and I'll go for Hoppy Non Cistern <laughs> beer, <laughs> uh, and I'll go for the Mayabi. All right, cheers, All right. Jeff. Oh, we should have figured out how to say this in Hindi. It's and I be don't think I ever knew. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Achahe. Danivad. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. The Beer Vana Podcast is proudly sponsored by Bud Light Limerita. 
Limerita has the crisp, refreshing taste of a Schlafly lemon basil goes, but it's not so poncy. You don't have to bother answering questions about whether it was kettle soured or when the lime zest was used, because all that nonsense is for silly hipsters. Just take a cooler full of these to your next party, pop open a tall frosty can, and enjoy. Bud Light Limerita, an uncomplicated buzz. <laughs> Oh, that totally sucked. <laughs> That's good. <laughs>